boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. This week we're venturing beneath the waves for a special aquatic edition of The Naked Scientists. We'll be finding out how whales have to sing louder to make themselves heard in noisy oceans, how there may be more fish lurking in the very deepest parts of the oceans than we ever imagined, and how cleaning up water could help coral reefs cope with climate change. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me this week is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello! Also on this week's Watery Show, we'll be getting the lowdown on oil spills and the impacts they have both in the open ocean and on the coastlines they end up on. And we'll be diving into the issues of climate change in the oceans, calling in on the Arctic and the Antarctic to find out what's going on in some of the most vulnerable parts of the world. Also, we'll meet some amazing animals from the bottom of the sea at the bottom of the world. Oh my god, that's huge. It's, it's, like, it's almost the size of a dinner plate. That is massive. We'll find out what that was and why it's so enormous later on in the programme. And we'll be hunting down a marine expert and asking them if they were a marine creature, which one would they be and why? Unlike most other fish, it's warm-blooded, so it's really kind of the king of the fish. Stay tuned to find out who that was and which critter they'd like to be. If you have any questions about the oceans for us, do get in touch through Twitter. It's at Naked Oceans. Or you can send us an email to nakedoceans at thenakedscientists.com. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. Well, let's kick off with some news from the ocean world. And if you've ever tried to have a conversation in a crowded bar, chances are you'll have ended up shouting yourself hoarse to be heard over the din. Well, it turns out that whales do something similar. And just like people, if things get too noisy, they may end up just giving up talking altogether. But unlike people, they probably don't just head for the dance floor. Susan Parks from Penn State University led a team who tagged 14 North Atlantic right whales in the Bay of Fundy in Canada. And they put acoustic tags on them that recorded all their calls as well as background noises. Well, they found that at times when background noise was louder, probably because of commercial shipping activity nearby, individual lone whales called at a greater intensity. That's essentially with more energy, strongly suggesting that the whales were trying to make sure that they were heard over the noise. And we already know that birds and primates do similar things when things get noisy around them as well. Well, shouting louder isn't necessarily a great idea for whales. It takes more energy and it makes them more likely to be heard by predators. And those important messages that they're trying to communicate could get mixed up. And ultimately, whales may not be able to hear each other, at least not over such long distances. Well, Sarah, do you know why they're called right whales? I actually don't. I have no idea. Well, it's a little bit sad, actually, but supposedly um, in the times when whale hunting was was all the rage, um, these were the right whales to hunt. They're full of blubber and they float after they've been harpooned instead of diving down deep um, and where they're difficult to, to retrieve. So the upshot is that these whales were almost hunted to extinction. Now, this study has really important implications for the conservation efforts of remaining right whales. The calls that the team studied are called up calls, and these are picked up on automated sound recorders that are set up in the sea, and they give us an estimate of how many whales there are in a particular area. And that provides crucial data for population monitoring. So if the whales are changing their calls when the waters get noisy, it could mean that these automated whale detectors are actually inaccurate. 
So it's a really important finding, not only because it provides yet more evidence that marine mammals could fare badly as the oceans get noisier, but because we may have to look again at the ways we use to work out how many of them there are left. Well, I've definitely had the, the sore throat the morning after the night before after having shouting in a crowded bar. It's not, not pleasant. Um, well, I've got another story here. Uh, a team of researchers from the University of Aberdeen have found that there actually may be more fish living at extreme depths of the ocean than we previously realised. The group led by Toyonobu Fuji used a free-fall lander baited with mackerel and equipped with a camera to observe life in the Haddle Zone of the Japan Trench in the Pacific Ocean. The Haddle Zone describes depths of between 6,000 metres and the full ocean depth of 11,000 metres. And the evidence for fish living at these depths has in the past been pretty uncertain and mainly based on trawling records, which are actually pretty unreliable because it's not really clear at what depth the fish really entered the net, so it can be quite unreliable with numbers. But by using direct observation with a camera, the team were able to record the deepest ever observation of a group of fish called snailfish at 7,703 metres depth. What was really exciting about using a camera rather than a trawl net was they were also able to observe the behaviour of the fish, which isn't something that has been done before and obviously isn't something you can do by just pulling some fish out of a net. From the observations, the team argued that although the numbers of these particular fish were much higher than expected, the diversity of fish species at great depth is actually probably much lower than previously estimated, although they did stress that our knowledge of the haddle zones of the deep ocean is still pretty inadequate and incomplete, I guess because it's a pretty hard place to study, really. Great depth, great pressure, you need a lot of specialist equipment to go down there, so... It is awesome to think of all the stuff we still don't really know about because it's just out of our range. But snailfish at seven kilometres beneath the sea, I mean, that's just fantastic. There's also an important study just out showing that if we take steps to improve local water quality, we can help coral reefs cope with the global problems of climate change and warming seas. Scientists at Florida Institute for Technology studied reefs across the Florida Keys, and that was throughout three periods of coral bleaching, which is when raised sea temperatures cause the life-giving algae to abandon their coral hosts, often killing them in the process. And in 2005, over half of the reefs in Florida bleached. Well, the research team found that the reefs that were hit the hardest were in areas where municipal wastewater runs off the land and dumps nutrients like nitrates and phosphates into coastal waters. This stresses out the corals, encouraging blooms of aggressive, big, leafy algae that outcompetes corals and makes them more susceptible to bleaching. Well, the healthier reefs that coped better with warmer sea temperatures were those bathed in cleaner water. Now, in the face of so many problems linked to climate change, like warmer, more acidic waters, sea level rise and all those sorts of things, it can be really difficult to remain positive about the state of the oceans, and in particular the vulnerable habitats we have, like coral reefs. But essentially, this study offers really good evidence that taking small, local steps to keep water clean can play a crucial role in keeping reefs healthy, making them more likely to survive other threats from climate change, which will need long-term and international solutions. So really, it's a perfect case of thinking globally, but acting locally. Well, one of the ways that of knowing how things are going to respond in the future is what, what have we got now? What, what species are we likely to lose in the future? And just finally, a really exciting piece of news has come out this week, which is to do with the census of marine life. This has been a decade-long worldwide project to catalogue all the life in the ocean, so pretty big ask. And the final results are going to be released on the 4th of October this year. 
But this week, an initial roll call of what species are present in the 25 marine areas of the census has been published in the journal PLOS One. The diversity and distribution of species in areas like Antarctica, the Mediterranean, the Humboldt Current and the Indian Ocean, to name just a few of the areas, were estimated using known literature and published and unpublished data. Australian and Japanese waters came out as the most biodiverse and the most abundant group of animals was the crustaceans, which made up almost a fifth of all known species across the regions, followed by mollusks with 17% and fish at 12%. The category of other vertebrates, which included all whales, dolphins, seabirds, seals and turtles, only came out at 2% of all species, prime example of how the best-known species may only form a tiny portion of the diversity. The inventory has been a really important part of the census project because it not only tells us some interesting information about what lives where, but it's also going to provide a baseline for measuring changes in the diversity and distribution in responses to changes and threats posed by humans, just like you know, nutrient runoff, acidification and all that sort of thing in the future. That's fantastic. Crustaceans are the kings and queens of the oceans. We should not overlook the crustaceans and the mollusks. Brilliant stuff, absolutely. Well, we look forward to that release of the final reports in October. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Sarah Costa-Perry and Helen Scales. If you've got any questions about the oceans for us, do get in touch through Twitter. It's at Naked Oceans, or you can send an email to nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Well, this week we're diving into the marine realm and looking at ocean science and conservation. Later in the show, we'll be looking at climate change in the oceans and visiting some creatures from the world's coldest waters that find themselves a long way from home. But first, the issue of oil spills and the environmental problems they can unleash have barely left the news headlines over the past few months, with events unfolding in the Gulf of Mexico following the explosion of the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. Well, as well as the potential impacts on marine birds, turtles, dolphins and so on, there's a lot less obvious wildlife that can also get hit hard, with some really worrying consequences. To tell us more about the hidden side of oil spills, I spoke to Robinson Fulweiler from Boston University in the U.S., They're not as clean and pristine looking from the outside eye as something like a coral reef that you might go snorkeling on. But um, marshes and mangroves are full of amazing creatures, um, and their homes, you know, things like barnacles and sponges, fish and crabs, um, even muskrats, and, of course, millions and millions of birds, right? So in Louisiana, one of my favorite birds is the roseate spoonbill, Um, And this bird has a pale yellow head and then this beautiful white neck, and the rest of it is all kind of hot pink. Um, Beyond all of that kind of sort of um, visual things that we might like to see, they have a lot of things that um, are important that we probably don't notice offhand. They're um, primary nursery habitat for lots of important um, fish species, both commercial and things, you know, so things we like to eat and sell. And then they provide the homes for a lot of the um, base of food webs. And then they're important for things that we kind of call these ecosystem values, and these are much harder to quantify. So they do things like um, they help us with flood mitigation, right? So you can think of a wetland like a giant sponge. So when you have lots of water coming in, these wetlands can kind of um, soak up that water and, and help us with floods. Then both wetlands and mangroves are really important for storm abatement and um, stopping storm surges and um, waves coming in, right? So things like tsunamis, even mangroves are really are, are good at sort of slowing down those kind of waves. 
And then um, I think the, the thing that I'm probably most interested in is the idea of wetlands and mangroves being important for water quality. So not only can you think of a wetland as a sponge, but you can kind of think of it as a giant filter, too. And there's lots of microbial processes that go on in, in wetlands that actually clean up our, our water. And in terms of that nutrient removal, how does that actually happen? Where do the nutrients go? Yeah, so you can think of it just like this. So the water's flowing through the wetlands, and it's bringing with it sediments and all these nutrients. And the sediment can get trapped sort of in the plants themselves, in the leaves and the, and the, the stalks, right? And then the nutrients can get taken up either by the vegetation or by the microbial community that's living in those sediments. Um, and what they do there, the, the microbes can, you know, they use them for energy, they're using them for food, um, and they convert them into sort of their own biomass, right? So they actually can absorb these nutrients. And one process that we are particularly interested in is this um, something called denitrification. So in denitrification, there's a group of organisms that take nitrate, which is NO3, and one of those um, nutrients that come in through um, fertilizer, right, and wastewater treatment, that kind of thing. So they take this form of biologically usable nitrogen, and what I mean by that is um, plants can use it, the microbes can use it, and they turn it into N2 gas. And so they're by doing that, they're essentially taking it from this usable form to a gas that's basically unusable to the majority of organisms um, on the planet, and so they've actually removed it from the system. And since humans add lots of nitrogen um, to the natural system in terms of fertilizer or wastewater treatment, um, we, we need these microbes to kind of clean up our act, if you will. And uh, what do we know about how oil contamination might affect those microbes? Is it toxic to them? So, you know, it's kind of one of those things um, where we're probably not 100% sure. So most of the work that's been done on looking at the effect of oil on the, on denitrification um, has been, been done sort of in the 80s and early 90s, and they found that in most cases the oil was toxic to them, but they weren't able to separate completely if it was a direct effect of sort of toxicity to the, the cell itself or if it was because it changed the environmental conditions in which they live and then sort of made the habitat not ideal for them. So, for instance, when um, this process takes place, it's often important to take the sediments um, and kind of mix it up. And what I mean by that is that things like crabs, right, make burrows and they can burrow down into the sediment. And when they do that, they're bringing fresh organic matter down with them and they're exposing this layer to oxygen and, and, and various things. And when you put a layer of oil on top of a salt marsh, say, typically we find that the crabs no longer burrow the way they normally do. Sometimes they just die outright and other times they just simply stop their burrowing. Um, and when you do that, you're changing this environment that the microbes are living in. So presumably, if we see wetlands losing their ability to mop up nutrients, we could also see some of the existing problems in the Gulf of Mexico, like the dead zone, get much worse. Right, exactly. And I and so I, I just saw a couple of days ago that they reported that the dead zone this year was the largest, one of the largest that it's ever been, about 20,000 square kilometers. And so that's actually equal to the size of Massachusetts, where I, I currently live, right, the state of Massachusetts. So that's that's a huge dead zone. And that's absolutely true. So the thought there is that the Mississippi, you know, used to, used to flood every year and flow over to the banks and would um, allow the sediment and nutrients to go into the marsh and the marsh could do its nutrient filtering thing that it does so well. 
Plus, we had a lot less nitrogen coming in at that point um, before we levied the Mississippi River. But now we we keep the river sort of on a pipe right all the way to the coast, and we don't allow it to overflow into the marsh. And so we're kind of we've cut off this natural filtering capacity. So that's bad for the marsh because it needs nutrients and sediment to grow, and we and we don't give it that anymore. Um, and then it's bad for the coastal area and the dead zone because we're directly transporting this nutrient-rich water from all the you know the farm belt in the U.S. out into the Gulf of Mexico. Now we passed the 100-day mark after the Deepwater Horizon explosion, and there was a lot of talk about how the spill was perhaps not such a terrible ecological disaster as we'd all feared initially. Do you think we should still be concerned about the impact of oil in the region? Absolutely. So I think the the first thing is that um, Louisiana's wetlands have been in trouble for a long time, and the last thing that they sort of needed was this oil spill. So we lose an area of wetland about the size of a tennis court every something like 30 seconds or something in Louisiana. So because of how the system is set up, it's losing a lot of salt marsh to, to sea level rise. Plus, we've already gone in there and, and done things like um, we've put a lot of piping for, for the oil and, and gas industry underneath the salt marsh. So that's sort of di- that's disrupted it. We've removed things like water and gas from underneath the salt marsh, so it's um, underneath the wetlands, so they're actually you know sinking. And then we had things like um, Hurricane Katrina, right, that came in and, and really caused some serious damage. Plus, as I mentioned, the fact that we're, we've disconnected the wetlands from the river and this natural process that helps build them. The wetlands are already in, in big trouble down there. Um, and the last thing they, they certainly needed was this oil spill. I think that uh, we all keep our fingers crossed that the oil spill is not a disaster and that it would go away and, and, and wouldn't be a problem. But I think that it's much too early to say that. Um, and if we look at some of the work that people have done on, on some of the big oil spills, like the Exxon Valdez oil spill and stuff, a lot of the sort of acute effects um, seem to go away relatively quickly. So a lot of birds and mammals died, and then we didn't see anything. And so I think people you know, tend to think it's okay. But there are issues with chronic low-level exposure to oil. And we could um, see that certainly in Louisiana. And there was a recent report saying that there was a, some of the blue crab larvae actually had oil attached to them. Um, and when larvae, you know, are exposed to hydrocarbons, they can actually have mutations um, and, and deformed. I, some a scientist I read in the newspaper the other day said a deformed larvae is, is just as bad as a dead larvae, right? So I think we sort of definitely hope that it's not going to be as bad as we all imagine, but I, I think it's much too early to say that. That's Robinson Fulweiler from Boston University talking about the Louisiana wetlands and the crucial hidden world of microbes. Stripping down science, the Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is the Naked Scientists with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, and this week we're talking the science of the oceans. On February the 15th, 1996, at 8pm, the Sea Empress oil tanker ran aground just off the coast of Pembrokeshire in southwest Wales. In the week that followed, 70,000 tonnes of North Sea light crude oil spilled out and it affected 120 miles of shoreline and some of the UK's most important and biodiverse coastal habitats. The oil killed tens of thousands of seabirds and affected 26 protected areas known as Sites of Special Scientific Interest, or SSSIs. I went to West Angle Bay, one of the worst hit beaches, to meet local ecologist Robin Crump to find out more about how the coastline is getting on 14 years after the spill. 
Well, if you look on the inside of this stone, you'll see that um, there are two starfish here. One is the big green one, which is Asterina gibbosa, the common one, and it's commonly found on the shore. And then there's a little tiny one here. Can you see? It's dark green with uh, a chocolate brown substar on the back. And um, this is uh, a very rare species called Asterina phylactica. And a colleague and I described it as a new species in 1978. You can imagine how I felt when I came down here the morning after the spill and found these rock pools completely covered in 10 centimetres of North Sea crude oil. All the pools were affected. The upper shore pools were almost pure oil. Um, the ones with the starfish in had a surface layer of oil uh, which completely covered them and I really thought they'd all be killed. In fact, something strange happened. Only the small Asterina phylactica, the rare one, turned out to be very susceptible to oil, and all but five died. By June, we could only find five animals left. Whereas only the baby Asterina uh, gibbosa died, and they, uh, the adults of Asterina gibbosa, the common one, then uh, laid eggs, and there was a huge population explosion. So one benefited from the oil, and the other one was almost wiped out. Now, this Asterina phylactica is very rare. At that time, there were only six sites for it in Britain. And so we were very concerned to uh, try and ensure that it survived, and so uh, carried on monitoring the pools every month. And in uh, June, um, after the spill, uh, I took one animal, which was sitting on eggs, it already laid its eggs and was brooding them, took it on its stone into the lab, um, it hatched out 50 babies, I put them back, and it's never looked back. The species now is more common than it was before the spill, just with a little help from its friend. Um, Asterina gibbosa, interestingly, as the numbers of Asterina phylactica grew to nearly a 1,000, Gibosa became less and less common, and there is intense competition between these two species for space on the shore. But at least the species has survived at this site. And because it became quite famous over the oil spill, uh, people have looked for it elsewhere, and there are now 20 or 30 sites for it in Britain. So, Robin, you, you know these shores probably better than anyone else. You've been here studying these, these shores for decades. But you were also here to study the changes after the oil spill. And quite an interesting story unfolded. And a central character were these chaps, the limpets. Can you tell us more about that? Well, that's right. We often call the limpet the rabbit of the shore because limpets graze across the surface of the rocks. You can actually see their feeding marks here on the rock, this zigzag trail of scratches, uh, where they're scraping off the algae. Now, they're also very susceptible to oil. They're not generally killed by it, but it sends them to sleep. So they relax their hold, fall off the rocks, and then either the gulls come down and eat them, moisture catches at a field day, or they get washed away by the waves and, and die that way. And so there was a huge mortality of limpets here at West Angle Bay. It was the most important effect of the spill uh, from an ecological point of view. Because once you remove the limpets, then it gives free rain to the seaweeds to grow. And this shore you're looking at here, if you look along, you'll see it's grey-white now with limpets and barnacles. But six months after the spill, it was completely covered in green algae, which had come in and there were just not enough limpets left to eat it off. The next year, in came the brown algae, and you had 
lovely thing called Fucus vesiculosus variety linearis, the bladderless bladderack, which covered the whole shore, uh, all the way through the middle shore. And that, of course, then acted as a habitat for other animals. So you've got flat periwinkles and other things which never normally grow on these exposed outer shores in Pembrokeshire, suddenly coming in and invading this new ecosystem. So by removing one keystone species, the limpid, you actually affect the whole ecosystem. But the limpets came back? Oh yes, well limpets have uh, planktonic larvae. And so the next year, uh, once the oil had been washed off more or less by the waves, then you got a resettlement of young limpets coming in. But it, and then another interesting thing was the limpet, the few limpets that had survived, grew to enormous size because they had a huge amount of food each. Normally, they're kept small because they're half starved. But um, because there were so few of them, they got to well some of the biggest limpets in Britain, seven centimeters long. But then you had a lot of young limpets coming in settling in amongst the base of the, um, the seaweed. After about four years, the seaweed dies anyway of old age and is smashed off the rocks by the waves, and then the limpets begin to grow and grow, and now we're back to a situation where most of the limpets here, you'll see, are quite small, perhaps only two centimetres long. So with your expert eyes, can you look at this shore and see a, a fingerprint of the oil spill, or does it really look much as it did... 14 years ago before this all happened? It's quite incredible to me the way the shore has recovered, I'll be honest. When I stood here 14 years ago, I thought it was the end of my teaching career here because we use this all the time. Not a bit of it. In fact, uh, in some ways, the shore is almost richer now than it was for some species than it was before the spill. And generally speaking, looking around you, the shore looks very much as it did before the spill happened. Having said that, of course, we don't know about genetic effects on organisms or possibly tiny trace elements of poisons which may still be in the system. But to the naked eye and to an amateur biologist like me, it looks just as good as it's ever done. Well, it was really good to see how thriving the coastline is after such a potentially dreadful disaster. And actually, a lot of people are saying it was really lucky that things weren't an awful lot worse. That was Robin Crump, former head of the Oilton Field Research Centre in Pembrokeshire, introducing me to some of the survivors of the Sea Empress oil spill. Now, oil spills don't just affect the shorelines that they wash up on, they can also cause important changes out at sea. I spoke with Amy Hirons from Nova Southeastern University in Florida to find out about the effects of oil in the pelagic realm. Well, I'm a biological oceanographer, and my interests really stem with looking at how ocean production or food is transferred from the smallest organisms, the phytoplankton, the plants, and the zooplankton, the animals, and how that's passed through the food web in the ocean all the way to apex predators things like sharks and whales and dolphins. The method that I use is utilizing stabilized isotope ratios. A lot of people understand or at least have heard of radioisotopes, which naturally decay over time, such as carbon-14, which can be used for dating. Stable isotope is somewhat similar, except it doesn't decay. And so it's used as a natural tracer. There are stable isotopes of many elements, such as carbon and nitrogen. So I can actually take a piece of tissue or bone or sediment and 
combust the sample, and I use a mass spectrometer then to look at the ratio of heavier and lighter isotopes, such as carbon or nitrogen. And that allows me to look at how carbon and nitrogen, which are composed in our food, is then passed through a food web. That provides this information on many different levels. One, uh, basically, who's eating whom. With nitrogen, carbon can actually give us information about geographic location. If an organism is found in the near shore in the estuarine environment versus offshore in the pelagic, or whether it's pelagic in the open water versus benthic on the ocean floor. So by tracing the carbon isotopes, you're effectively tracing the impacts of oil spills through the food chain. Yes, and by working with environmental chemists who can look at various fractions of the petroleum product itself and then comparing that to the same kind of components of cells of fish and invertebrates and plankton, we can determine if certain components of petroleum are truly being incorporated physiologically in an organism and then being passed on through the food web. And then we can follow any kind of detrimental impact, certainly uh, looking at an organism directly and at cellular structures, but also by looking at uh, population numbers and community structures. Previous work that I did after the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Prince William Sand, Alaska, indicated that for many different organisms that there were different impacts. Certainly there was the external, the direct impacts of reduced primary production because there wasn't the phytoplankton able to stay in the water column and synthesize, photosynthesize. But then there were fish that developed ulcers and tumors. There were decreased numbers of populations of various organisms such as stellar sea lions and harbor seals that we began to be concerned that this carbon and other elements or other components of petroleum products were actually being incorporated and damaging the cells of these organisms. And that is our major concern right now is that, uh, one, we don't have a lot of information about some of the detrimental impacts, particularly at the base of the food web in the phytoplankton and the zooplankton. And of course, it's not just the oil that's having effects, it's how we're dealing with the oil as well. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, many oil companies use a chemical dispersant to help break apart uh, the oil, much like a dish detergent is added to a sink full of dirty dishes that may have oil deposits to help break apart the oil or the little gloves. So BP has been using their own chemical dispersant called Corexit, and they've been releasing it at the source of the oil, uh, the well from the Deepwater Horizon. What most people don't know, as far as I uh, am aware, is what impact that dispersant is actually going to have on the cellular level of different organisms. So where we've been talking about the potential impact of petroleum and how it's traced through the, uh, through the food web, we don't know about the chemical dispersant. And that also could be having detrimental effects to a degree that we just don't know. One thing we're trying to do right now is there are many different researchers out in different platforms out in the Gulf of Mexico, all the way down into the Florida Straits and in the areas of the Florida Keys, collecting water samples, collecting microscopic organisms, looking and doing counts of these larger fish and invertebrates, 
trying to determine have their population numbers changed. So is there a detrimental impact uh, that could be killing the organisms or damaging the organisms outright? Or is it something that can also be perpetuated through the food web, through bioaccumulation in the tissues? We don't know that, and that has to be studied. So what do you think, I mean, obviously with the, the spill in the Gulf of Mexico, do you think it's going to be, we're going to be seeing the impact and the accumulation of the oil from that in seals, seabirds, that sort of thing in years to come? I absolutely believe that to be the case based on uh, what we've seen in other locations like Prince William Sound. Another serious impact that the oil can have, not just on the phytoplankton and the zooplankton, but uh, juveniles, those organisms that have recently been hatched or spawned at the time of the oil spill from the Deepwater Horizon was also a similar timing that many organisms actually spawn. So we have the water column is now full of developing ichthyoplankton or baby fish that may be impacted. We may lose year classes of fish or invertebrates. Um, we just don't know at this point. It's just too early to tell. Because I suppose most people, you see on the news the impacts with seabirds and the large-sized animals, but people don't necessarily think that the impacts on the microscopic life out in the open ocean. Oftentimes my concern is that people have this out-of-sight, out-of-mind feeling about oil or an oil spill. People tend to not think about what they can't see. That's human nature, I believe oh, we've cleaned it up, oh, we don't see tar balls anymore, we don't see evidence of an oil slick. But the fact is, is just because you can't see it with the naked eye doesn't mean it's not still in the environment, either in the deep ocean, in the benthos, uh, being incorporated and continually being reutilized. And again, I've repeated it several times, they're at the base of the food web. Without the phytoplankton and the zooplankton, you don't have anything else in the ocean. And that's why it's critical for us to find out what the impact of petroleum products are having. That was Amy Hirons from Nova Southeastern University in Florida talking to me about how the contamination from oil spills can be traced in the open ocean. You can find out more about the science behind oil spills from the Open University, including insight into why we're so hooked on oil, ways we can clear up spills, and some of the latest developments from the Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico. You can check out all that by going to our website, thenakedscientist.com, and following the links to The Open University. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, and this week we're talking the science of the oceans. Now, there's little doubt that the increasing level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is already leading to some really worrying impacts on our oceans. The effect of climate change in the marine realm is a huge topic and there are all sorts of implications and issues to consider. But to get a handle on where we're at, I spoke to John Bruno from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He recently wrote a review in the journal Science, summing up what we currently know about what's going on already and what we might expect to see in the coming years. It's surprising how quickly this is all happening. I thought I would mostly spend my career warning people about the dangers of future climate change, but it's happening so quickly I'm actually witnessing it and probably will spend half my career studying it. So what kind of changes are we seeing happening in the oceans? So we're we're seeing first very simple changes. Animals um, simply dying when the water gets too hot. 
Um, so corals and many other animals have um, very uh, specific um, thermal thresholds. So they can only tolerate temperatures either too warm or too cold to a certain degree. And so, for example, if um, summertime water temperatures get about a degree Celsius or a little bit more warmer than as usual, that can kill corals. And then, of course, once the corals die, um, the rest of the reef um, really degrades because so many fish and invertebrates depend on the corals. But I think the really interesting thing from um, our review article was how many other more fundamental but in a lot of ways less visible changes um, are occurring as a result of climate change um, generally and um, ocean warming in particular. So it's not as simple as warming happens, animal dies. So that's pretty simple, and that's, I think, what scientists have been looking for and what the public probably um, expects. Um, but there's far more fundamental changes, for example, in, in processes. So we know from experimental evidence that things like larval develop, development and metabolism are very sensitive to temperature. It's a very difficult thing to actually measure um, in the field. But there are some related phenomena um, from this broader field of science called um, the metabolic theory of ecology um, that we are seeing. So, for example, um, plankton in the North Atlantic are getting smaller, and that's exactly what the metabolic theory of ecology predicts. Um, the warmer the temperature, the smaller the organisms. So we're seeing both um, phytoplankton, the small plants, and zooplankton, the animals that eat them, getting smaller and smaller. And part of that is um, selection for smaller individuals within a species, and part of that's the replacement of larger-bodied species by smaller-bodied species. And we're talking phytoplankton, we're talking changes there are going to ripple all the way through the ecosystems. That's right. And so those changes might sound um, not so profound. Okay, so phytoplankton gets smaller. Um, but here's two really big implications. One is that it reduces the efficiency of what's called um, the carbon pump. And that is the rate at which um, the ocean ecosystem in the, in, the, in the middle of the ocean extracts carbon dioxide um, and essentially moves it down into the deep water. And that happens when phytoplankton die, they sink down to the bottom, and then that carbon in their bodies effectively gets stored for a long time. And that's a really useful thing um, for us right now because it's mitigating some of the carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere. There's another interesting implication for fisheries. So the transfer of energy from one trophic level to another, for example, from plant to herbivore, from herbivore to carnivore, um, is very inefficient. So only about 10% um, of the energy from a plant, for example, makes it into the herbivore. And that's true all the way up the food chain. So the smaller the plants are, you end up adding another trophic level um, to the food chain. And what that does is reduces the biomass and productivity Activity of the species that we're fishing. So we're predicting that we're going to start seeing reduced production of the carnivores that we like to catch and eat. Which of those things is worrying you the most? I find the change in species distributions both worrying and also, frankly, quite interesting. So we're seeing rapid range shifts of tropical and temperate species away from the equator um, into northern waters. So there's really good evidence from long-term monitoring projects that, that that's happening in the North Atlantic, and it's true for phytoplankton and zooplankton, um, as well as for fish. So again, these tropical species are moving northward as the oceans warm. And a study just came out in um, the journal PLOS One. It's open access, so anybody can go look for it. It's um, Faldry et al., 2009. 
and they had a time series of what fish were present in the northern Gulf of Mexico in the 1970s, and they went back to the same sites and used nets to catch all the fish to figure out what was there now. And really surprisingly, they found that there was about 15 new species that had moved north primarily from coral reefs in the Yucatan Peninsula and had invaded um, salt marsh and seagrass environments now in the northern Gulf of Mexico. And it's primarily due, we think, to the warming that they've seen there, about 5 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit or 2 to 3 degrees Celsius of warming over the last 30 years. And it's a really interesting phenomenon because now a whole new suite of predators and herbivores are being exposed to prey species, both plants and fish. They have no evolutionary history with them. So there's really kind of no coevolutionary history between predator and prey. So warming oceans are already profoundly mixing up life in the sea as we know it. There's lots to think about there. That was John Bruno, a marine ecologist from the University of North Carolina in the US, telling us a bit more about the visible and the invisible changes we're seeing with climate change in the oceans. Now, it's really interesting that John mentioned how shocked he was to find out how fast changes are taking place in the oceans. One place we're already seeing these changes is the Antarctic. I went along to meet David Barnes from the British Antarctic Survey here in Cambridge to find out more and to meet some amazing animals that have come a long way from home. Okay, I think most people know that Antarctica is the coldest place on Earth, but what they don't realise is that it's the driest, the windiest and the highest place on Earth, and all of these are very important to the biology. It has no invasive species, so no species that aren't supposed to be there in the sea, Its native fauna, the animals that have always lived there, occur nowhere else on Earth. They are incredibly sensitive to some things like temperature change. And of course, this being one of the fastest changing parts on the planet, and one of the parts of the planet that affects most others, because of course ice turns into water that raises sea level. So we can look back at the way that the planet has responded to changes in the past, and that record is preserved in the animals there. So that's why we go south to look at many of, uh, many of the animals and what they can tell us about our planet. So what sort of changes have you seen already out in the field from the results that you've got? I've been going down to Antarctica now since about 1990. Uh, and in that time, there have been some really profound changes, uh, particularly in the Bellingshausen Sea, which is around the Antarctic Peninsula. There it's got quite a lot warmer uh, only in the surface layers, but it's, but it's made a big difference. A, a degree of temperature there doesn't sound much here, but you remember that in the last four and a half million years, uh, the annual temperature variability is about three degrees. Now, that's, that's tiny when we might get that sort of temperature variation in a month uh, around the UK. So big temperature changes on land and in the sea. A lot of sea ice has been lost around the Bellingshausen Sea as well. And that's, and that's important for several things. Um, when the sea changes from white to blue, it absorbs a lot more heat. And that means that, that our planet is warming up and, uh, and an astronaut sitting on a space station would see that change dramatically. That means that there's a lot more sea open and getting a lot more light. So phytoplankton is making a lot more food. Now that helps us because that's taking carbon, carbon dioxide, out of the air and into the water, and perhaps sequestering it down to the seabed, getting rid of it. So how's the biology reacting to all all this? Well, 
more food means that there's there's new possibilities for some animals um but also because the sea ice is retreating further south animals too are retreating further south and so we're seeing rain shifts in where organisms occur so in the field we're seeing range and productivity shifts but the team can also learn a lot more about the animals by bringing them on the 7000 mile trip back to cambridge Right, so we're just heading into the cold room now. We've got to put on some lab coats, not just to keep us warm, but to stop all of our external stuff getting all over your precious samples. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And we're going to tread on a mat that's going to kill anything on our feet when we walk into this sealed uh, aquarium facility. Gosh, it really is quite cold in here. So we've got about 10 tanks absolutely chopped full of things so we've got starfish anemones why why bring them back at all i mean it seems like a lot of effort yes it is a lot of effort and it's very costly in time and expense but there's lots of work we can do here particularly with respect to genetics and the physiology looking at the detailed measurements that we need carefully controlled uh, experimental facilities that we can do in labs here so one of the things that we've been doing with some of the animals here is that we've been manipulating the acidity of the water which is projected to change a lot over the next 100 years just by tiny amounts and seeing whether that fundamentally alters their ability to build skeletons and to maintain their skeletons. It's more tricky building and maintaining a skeleton in Antarctic waters. Changing the acidity there by a tiny amount will make a bigger difference than elsewhere. So we can manipulate those changes that are likely to happen in tens of years in months here. And these are our model organisms that we have been very carefully and making tiny, tiny changes and looking at the response that they give. Oh my God, that sea spider is huge. It's, it's, like, it's almost the size of a dinner plate. That is massive. This very cold water holds a lot of oxygen. So some animals can reach gigantic sizes. So if we look into this aquarium here, we can see two sea spiders that are the size of my outstretched palm. And that's because these raised oxygen levels means that it's much easier to get oxygen to their tissues. And sea lice and cone jellies also reach gigantic sizes in polar waters. Right, well, it's getting a bit chilly in here. So uh, I think, David, we should probably go back to the office and, and leave your beasties in peace. So, David, what do you think are the changes that we are likely to see in Antarctica in the future? I think we're going to see areas like the Scotia Sea and the Bellingshausen Sea getting much warmer. We're going to see more sea ice losses, and so even more heat being absorbed by blue ocean. There's going to be a lot of phytoplankton production. We're going to see collapse of ice shelves, which is going to be dramatic because they tend to happen very quickly. Uh, exposing large areas of, um, of seabed that we have never seen that will gain whole new communities of life that will take down carbon. We're also going to see dramatic changes in the acidity that might fundamentally affect whether organisms are able to maintain skeletons or not. And things like that could, could really reshape the planet. Our problem is on knowing how fast these things are going to happen. And with many, we've been surprised even at the pace of things in the last 10 years. Typically, things are happening faster than we, we thought they would. And what do you think that the changes in Antarctica can tell us and will mean for the ocean system and global climate system as a whole? Because it's got the most unstable large ice masses, 
global sea level rise will be dictated by what goes on in Antarctica. But it also drives the world's ocean circulation system, the thermohaline circulation system. And so sinking water masses and the rate of sinking and the rate of outflow from Antarctica distributes oxygen and ocean current speeds and direction around the planet. And so small changes in the oceanography there have a big deal uh, of difference in the Atlantic and the Pacific. But also the way that biology responds there is going to be our early warning system on the way that life is going to respond elsewhere. Because in Antarctica, things are changing faster, but also because life is more sensitive there, it's giving us uh, a state of things to come elsewhere. It will be a problem to some biodiversity. It won't to others. There will be winners and losers. But I think we will be the biggest losers out of climate change. Most people and most industry live on the coast. We're going to lose a lot of coastal land. And of course, deserts expanding very quickly and the water table going down dramatically in many places means that we're going to face big migration issues. People aren't going to be able to get enough water. They're going to lose their land. And so lots of people are going to be very crowded for very little resources. So, yeah, climate change is a big issue for us and Antarctica is going to shape our future. So clearly there are many extremely important changes happening already in Antarctica with big implications for the rest of the world. That was David Barnes from the British Antarctic Survey giving me a lowdown on climate change down south and letting me peek at some extraordinary and, quite frankly, quite terrifying animals. (laughs) Absolutely. That uh, that sea spider was really quite enormous, but wonderful all the same. Well, it's not just down south in the Antarctic where rapid changes are taking place due to warming seas. The Arctic, on the opposite side of the planet, is also undergoing remarkable shifts in sea ice. We hear a lot about how this might affect big, charismatic, lovely animals like polar bears and walruses, but there's also an awful lot more going on in Arctic sea ice than first meets the eye. To find out more, I had a chat with David Thomas from Bangor University in Wales to find out about the changing face of Arctic sea ice. It's been very clear for the last five, six years or so that we really do have shrinking summer sea ice in the Arctic. This means that ice that normally lasted throughout many seasons is is now almost totally disappearing in the summer. This is in contrast to the total ice in the Arctic in the winter period, which is about the same extent as, as it's always been. So when people in the media talk about Arctic sea ice loss, they're really talking about loss of sea ice in the summer months. And there are predictions that, well, the most catastrophic is is by 2013 there will be no ice in the the Arctic Basin in the summer. Um, More conservative estimates say in the next 100 years there will be no uh, ice in the Arctic Basin in the summer. Um, But there will always be Arctic sea ice in the winter, and uh, this is one of the things that tends to be forgotten, is that um, we are talking about long-lasting ice rather than total ice extent in the the Arctic. So one of the consequences of, of there being less summer ice, and this is the Arctic was renowned in the, in the past for having thick ice flows of, you know, 10 metres thick. Um, uh, the thick ice is actually going, so the, the mean thickness of the ice in the Arctic Ocean is, is going down dramatically. But one of the consequences of ice going is that... Um, especially snow-covered ice, reflects a lot of solar radiation. And, and seawater, which is a rather a dark body, absorbs radiation. So one of the things that's happening with, with the Arctic sea ice is as there's getting more and more open water, more and more heat is absorbed, and this is actually increasing the rate, or is thought by some to be increasing the rate of the melting of the Arctic ice. 
Well, we hear a lot about polar bears and walruses being the wildlife that suffer as Arctic summer ice disappears. But there's a lot more going on, not just at the top of the food web. What do we know about life under and even in the sea ice? And why is it important? Sea ice was often thought to be a, a, a desert uh, devoid of all life and we now know that there's actually a, a myriad of organisms from viruses to small crustaceans that actually live within the ice itself. There's a whole host of other larger organisms that live in this very narrow band at the ice water interface on the peripheries of ice flows and there's a, there's a host of organisms that are, that are eating on the ice biology and the organisms of the ice water interface like fish larger crustaceans uh, that are the basis of the food web for the seals and the more charismatic polar bears. Um, so, so there's a whole host of uh, different habitats that are provided by sea ice and a whole, you know, if you like, ecosystems that are provided by sea ice that are in turn are, are, are the food source for the, for the major charismatics that maybe catch the attention of the media a little bit more. Presumably, we still have an awful lot left to discover about these sea ice ecosystems. There must be a lot of things we still don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's right that, uh, you know, sea ice research and the research into the organisms living in sea ice has been going on for the past um, 100 years, if you like, but it's only since we've had access to, to sophisticated research vessels and been able to, to launch ice camps um, for, for, for weeks and months at a time that we're really actually being able to delve into sea just how fascinating this life around the ice is and how important it is for fueling the whole ecosystem. So what's intriguing in this whole climate change and sea ice extent debate is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hugely significant for the whole Earth system that this ice is going and that the surface oceans are warming as a result of uh, there being less ice and that in turn is, is melting the ice. But we don't really have much of an inkling what all these changes are going to do to the biology within that system as well. We know the polar bears need ice flows for which to hunt but what happens if the whole of the, the food web underneath those ice flows is taken out as well so we, we concentrate on the physical factors I think in, in Arctic sea ice change um, we don't know that much about the biological factors I think it's true to say Absolutely and I guess sadly to some extent we're running out of time for these sea ice ecosystems is there anywhere in particular that you're focusing your research efforts at the moment? One of the intriguing things about this whole sea ice and climate change effects is, is that, of course, we, we concentrate on the Arctic because that's where tangible changes are taking place. But in the Antarctic, for instance, we're not noticing such major changes in sea ice, except in certain regions like the Antarctic Peninsula. But in the, the rest of the Antarctic, the total sea ice extent is, is, is rather, rather stable, if not increasing slightly. So it must be said that the climate change focus on the effects of climate change really are focusing in on the Arctic um, because I think time is running out you know if in 50 years time there is no summer sea ice and we don't really understand why the summer sea ice was important for the ecology um, we're going to be a little bit bamboozled by that so I think we we do have a sense that time is really running out in the Arctic for actually understanding how important these systems are. I guess really the big question is what's going to happen in the years ahead do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think there's any argument. I, what I'm fairly convinced is that, you know, we are going to reach a stage where, you know, Arctic sea ice is going to be absent in the summer months. 
this means that there's going to be much larger periods of open water. Potentially, um, that would mean, because ice is a very good absorber of light, so you put a slab of ice a meter thick over the ocean, and a lot of light gets cut out. So if there's no ice, potentially there will be increases in the amount of uh, productivity or primary production of the, of the unicellular phytoplankton. Um, that would mean that maybe there is more food for the copepods and the crustaceans to eat, and therefore more for the fish. Now, in the most simplistic terms, we could say that actually the productivity of the Arctic could actually go up, but we don't actually know how important the, the organisms within the sea ice are at the moment for their contribution to productivity in, in, in total. So I think there's a lot of guesswork going on, and uh, people don't really know. What we do know is that the ice that will be there is going to be thinner, more light will get through to the water, so therefore productivity in the ice and in the surface waters could potentially go up. That was David Thomas from Bangor University telling us about the incredible ecosystems that live on and in Arctic sea ice and the problems they're facing in a warmer world. Well, that's exactly what we found with the, the census of marine life story earlier on. You know, it's not just the big species that make the differences. It's, it's the small ones that we should be worrying about. Now, instead of question of the week this week, we've got a critter of the week for you. We thought it'd be fun to hunt down a top marine scientist and ask them to tell us if they were a marine critter, which one would they be and why? So let's find out who we caught and which species they picked. I'm Carl Safina. I'm an author and president of Blue Ocean Institute at Stony Brook University. And the species that I would like to be is a bluefin tuna. It's a huge fish. It's one of the strongest fish in the sea, one of the fastest. And um, unlike most other fish, it's warm-blooded. So it's really kind of the king of the fish. I've seen these fish many times throughout my life. And I've always thought it was thrilling to watch them ripping through the surface and exploding as they chase their prey. And it looked very powerful, but also like a lot of fun. So they seemed to really be in command, and it seemed like a kind of thing that if you could come back as a, as a fish, that would be the one I would want to be. Fantastic. Who wouldn't want to be a bluefin tuna? Well, I suppose as long as you don't get caught and made into sushi. That was Carl Safina choosing a critter of the week. We've been asking other marine experts to pick their favourite marine species for us. Go online to hear more about ocean critters at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for listening to our aquatic episode of The Naked Scientists. If you'd like to find out more about what's going on in the naked oceans, then do go online to thenakedscientist.com slash oceans. And next week, The Naked Scientist will be coming up for air just in time for Chris to take the show down under, where he'll be looking at some of the latest science from Australia. Get any questions you have to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Tweet us at Naked Scientists. Why don't you go and post a question on Facebook or, if you like, join the discussion on our forum. For now, it just remains for me to say a huge thank you to Robin Crump, Robinson Fourweiler, Amy Hirons, John Bruno, David Barnes, David Thomas and Carl Safina. The Naked Scientist was produced by Chris Smith and presented by me, Helen Scales and Sarah Caster-Perry. It was produced in association with The Open University. To discover a whole range of science content, including lots of interactive features, log on to thenakedscientist.com and follow the links to The Open University. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Scientist.com.